hopefully uh, we all found many opportunities this past week to bless the Lord uh, as we uh, had the opportunity to be reminded of God's worthiness of being blessed and thanks, thanked. As we remember his benefits, of what God has so graciously done for us. We looked at that psalm, Psalm 103, uh, last Sunday. Um, and as we saw there, hopefully, this past week, and any times that you realize you were not blessing the Lord as you should be, that like David, you were able to sit yourself down and give yourself a good talking to, to remind yourself that God is worthy of being blessed and being thanked all the time with all of your might. That's the part that stuck in my mind this past week. I, I kept thinking about that, of how David says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, every part of me, with all of my might, I should be blessing and thanking the Lord. He is worthy of that. And hopefully you are here still today with a desire and an an attitude of continuing to bless and thank the Lord with all your might because he is still worthy. This morning we are going to move on in our regular study of Hebrews but we're not done with the idea of giving thanks. Uh, I'm, I'm often conflicted around the Thanksgiving holiday about where we should go in Scripture on, on Sunday mornings before and after. Should we uh, divert away from a regular study? Should we stay, stay going where we've been? And the reason for that is because I'm pretty sure in every passage in Scripture, we can find a reason to give thanks. I'm not at all opposed to uh, diverting away and, and preaching a message on being thankful. As I said last week, uh, I know I need to be reminded. Uh, we probably all need to be reminded of how thankful we ought to be. and We are to be thanking God all the time. But we can do that from practically any passage in Scripture. There's always something that we should be thanking God for. So variety is nice sometimes, but we can still find ways of reminding ourselves to be thankful right here in Hebrews as we continue on in our regular study from where we've been. It's important to remind ourselves. We who know Christ... That we are commanded to be thankful. It's not an option. It's a command. That we are to give thanks to God. We also have every reason to be thankful. And we rightly ought to be the most thankful people on the planet. And it shouldn't be close. If you know Christ, you ought to be one of the most thankful people on the planet. Even though we suffer too. Sometimes we face trials. 
sometimes we as Christians, we still grieve. But we as Christians do not grieve as those who have no hope. Even when we grieve, even when life is hard, if we know Christ, we have reasons to be thankful. So we ought to always be thankful. The truth of what we're going to see this morning in Hebrews is one more reason for a believer in Jesus Christ to be majorly thankful. And it has to do with your conscience. How is your conscience this morning? That may sound like a strange question to ask, unless you've seen up here the title of my sermon. Maybe it makes sense. How is your conscience? The answer to that question is important. Because the condition of a person's conscience has a lot to do with how they live their life, how they view God, how they try to approach God. So how is your conscience? Well, maybe we need to begin by defining what a conscience is. Just make sure we're, we're thinking the same here. Well, one commentator gives this definition. He says the conscience is properly man's inner knowledge of himself, especially in the sense of his answerability for his motives and actions in view of the fact that he, as a creature made in the image of God, stands before and must give an account of himself to his creator. Your conscience is knowing who you are and that you are accountable to God. Knowing that you will one day stand before God to give an account and that he knows you. God knows your thoughts. He knows every word you say. He even knows your motives. How's your conscience this morning? Others have uh, put out a little simpler definition of a conscience. That's the inner alarm that tells you when you've done wrong. And some have described it as being kind of like that pain response. If you put your hand on a stove, it hurts if it's hot. You pull it away. Your conscience is like that in giving you a response of guilt when you've sinned so that you will pull away. Realize that that sin is something that's not good for you. It's an alarm that goes off within you to alert you when you've done wrong. Now that is the case if we haven't seared our conscience or if we haven't become so hardened by sin that we no longer feel that conscience warning us. And we probably all know the misery of those feelings of guilt and how awful it is to know that we've done wrong, to know that we are guilty. And isn't it terrible to experience having a guilty conscience? Is there anything that can be done to clear a guilty conscience? Mark Twain once said, a clear conscience is the sure sign of a bad memory. 
Is that the only hope that there is? To have a clear conscience? To try to forget about it? Or just to become so hardened in sin that it no longer bothers you? Or to try to blame someone else for the wrongs that you've done? That's the way that some try to deal with their guilty conscience. But it wasn't my fault. They made me. If it wouldn't have been for this, then I wouldn't have. It's someone else's fault. Or to try to drown out the conscience with something else. Drugs, alcohol. Try to drown it out with busyness. Something to try to to distract us from the guilt that we feel when we know that we're wrong. Those are all things that have been tried. Is there anything better? Is there anything that would be a real permanent solution to a guilty conscience? When we were last in Hebrews, we saw the superiority of the new covenant over the old covenant. The old covenant was brought into effect through the giving of the law of Moses. When the people of Israel said to God, yes, we will do all that you have said. That was the old covenant was put into effect. The new covenant was brought into effect by the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. The old covenant was what the original readers of the book of Hebrews had known for their whole lives. It's what they had grown up with and become comfortable with. And now they were in a time of suffering. They were hurting because of persecution. And so they were looking for something that would comfort them. Maybe the familiar would help. Maybe in this time of their suffering and consciousness of their guilt, maybe the familiarity of that old covenant, the law, would be what would help them to deal with this guilty conscience. The author of Hebrews has been and continues, will continue to prove why Jesus Christ is superior. That's the point of the book of Hebrews. The author of Hebrews looks at it from every angle imaginable. Why Jesus Christ is superior. He is the solution to your greatest needs. So these people who had been introduced to Christ were now thinking of turning back to that old covenant. Here's another reason of why not. In today's passage, we see that the old covenant does not have the answer to a guilty conscience. Let's start reading in chapter 9 of Hebrews, verse 1. It says, Now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. Now, the author of Hebrews is focusing on the tabernacle that the Israelites had as their center of worship in the wilderness. The instructions for the building of this tabernacle were given as a part of the law that was given to Moses. And so this is so closely related to that old covenant. Those instructions were given to Moses with great detail. When I'm reading and doing a a read through the Bible in a year plan, when I get into that section, that's often where I get bogged down. 
have a hard time keeping up and keeping going because there's so much detail given about that tabernacle. God says, here's what you need to do. This is how you need to build it. This is the materials that you need to use. This is the size that it needs to be. Then the next several chapters is, so Moses did what God said, and he built it with these materials and used these, this construction method and these materials. And um, just back and forth, uh, someone pointed out that God only gave three chapters to the creation of the universe, but there are dozens of chapters on all the details of the building and the furnishings and the cloth to be used in the tabernacle. Well, that tells us that there's something important about that. The author of Hebrews is going to remind us of a few of those details. And as I read through some of these details he gives us, uh, you can follow along with me in your Bible, or you can listen and look up here on the screen as Corbin puts up the next slide there. Here's an, a cutaway illustration of the, the tabernacle. And so you can see here some of what he's talking about. Uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 2 says, For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the holy of holies. Having a golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold. In which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod, which budded and the tables of the covenant. Now, if you are one who has had great interest in all the furnishings of the tabernacle, if you've paid a lot of attention to that, or if you're just paying close attention to this picture up here on the screen, you may have caught that in verse 4 of Hebrews 9, he makes it sound like the golden altar of incense was behind the second veil and inside the Holy of Holies. Um, the Old Testament, which this picture is consistent with, it says that that altar of incense is not in the Holy of Holies. It's on the front side of the curtain. It's only the Ark of the Covenant that's in the Holy of Holies. And so you know, a few different possible explanations have been given as to why the author of Hebrews makes it sound like that altar of incense is inside the Holy of Holies. It could be just because that altar was so connected with the Holy of Holies. Um, incense from that altar was an important part of what the high priest would take in to the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. Smoke from that incense altar would fill the Holy of Holies. Um, and so it, it was a very important part of what happened in the Holy of Holies, but it wasn't technically in there. But the author of Hebrews just lumps them together because they, they went together so much. But whatever the certain explanation is, the Ark of the Covenant was the focus of what was in that second compartment, behind that second veil, the Ark of the Covenant. As we go on in verse 5, it says, And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. And so those are not insignificant details 
But those details aren't the main point of what the author wants to get across. If you want more details, you can find them. They're there in the Old Testament. That much is sufficient for now. The more significant aspect about this tabernacle was what happened in the different compartments of the tabernacle. So, verse 6. Now, when these things have been prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. And so, daily, the priests of Israel, they'd go into that first room there. They'd do what needed to be done to keep that lamp lit. They would replace that bread on the the table uh, to the right side. They would do those things daily. Verse 7, but into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing. So as long as this, this tabernacle, as long as that is the way to intimate fellowship with God, as intimate as it could be at that time, as long as his presence with Israel was symbolically and visibly confined behind the curtain. That curtain was a continual reminder to the people of Israel and to the priesthood that you can't go there. You can get this close to God, but no further. The people of Israel could come inside those gates. They couldn't go into the holy place. The priests could go into the holy place, but they could not go into the holy of holies. Only the high priest once a year could go beyond that veil, but he could only go with blood as a sacrifice for their sins. So the reason that curtain was there was because God is holy and the people are sinners. And there is no amount of sacrifices or offerings presented by the priests that would remove that curtain. That curtain stayed. And so its presence was a constant reminder to the people and to the priests of their sins. You can't go there. You can't get near to God's visible presence because you are a sinner. Verse 9 says, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. He says, all those animals that died, all those sacrifices, all the bread and grain, whatever else were given as offerings, no amount was enough to completely clear a person's conscience. They were always reminded of their sin. If they wanted to draw near to God, they were prevented. You can go no further. There was that curtain. It was always there. A continual reminder 
And another sacrifice would have to be made. And then another one. And another one. Because they were still sinners. And that curtain was always there. All the sacrifices, all the offerings, even the the ceremonial washings, they might grant them some external cleansing to allow them to continue to do the ceremonies. But they would not remove the veil between them and God. It would not cleanse their consciences. There's an important detail about the effectiveness of those sacrifices back in verse 7. The high priest took the blood into the Holy of Holies once a year, says in verse 7, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. Do you notice that? He took that blood for himself and the people for the sins committed in ignorance. So those sacrifices were for the sins that people committed when they weren't really planning on sinning. Or maybe they didn't realize at the time that what they were doing was sin. And later they realized that it was. Or maybe they sinned and didn't even know that they did. That happens. Sometimes we sin and don't even realize that we did. But it's interesting that there were no sacrifices, no solution given in the law for intentional sins. When people knew what they were doing was sin, but they did it anyway. There were no sacrifices given for that. No solutions presented in the law. That's why David prayed in Psalm 51.16, For you do not delight in sacrifices, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. You remember the, the context of Psalm 51. It was after David's sin with Bathsheba and having her husband murdered. And David knew that that adultery and that murder was wrong. But he did it anyway. And so he couldn't say, well, it's no big deal. Just have the priest throw another sheep on the altar. So it would do no good. That sacrifice was not for that kind of sin. David had a very guilty conscience. And there was nothing that the law could do about it. Have you ever sinned even though you knew it was sin? Silly question, isn't it? Maybe I could ask how many times today have you sinned? even though you knew it was sin. Now, when you think about it like that, how's your conscience? Sometimes we sin and we don't even realize we do. Sometimes we know it's wrong and we do it anyway. How's your conscience? There's another important detail, the end of verse 10. In these words, until a time of reformation. Now the reason that there was any hope for David in this prayer of confession and repentance in Psalm 51, the reason there was any hope for anyone under the Old Covenant 
was because God had planned and promised a day when a change would be made and the old covenant would be replaced. So their hope, the forgiveness, a real relationship that they could have with God did not come through the Mosaic law. It came through the promise of that day, that day of reformation, that day when a real solution would come. It was always God's plan for the old covenant, the law of Moses, to be temporary. The old covenant, the law of Moses, were never intended to be the solution. It was always the promise of that day, that day of reformation, that day when the new would come. So David could cast himself on God's mercy because of that future time of reformation. Of that time of reformation was Christ. Verse 11, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. So the solution to a guilty conscience could not be found in the law. David knew he could not offer a sacrifice that would cleanse cleanse his conscience knowing that you are accountable to God and one day will stand before him to give an account there is nothing in the law that can calm a guilty conscience but when Christ appeared that changed he came to be the high priest that the Levitical high priest could not be He is serving in the greater and more perfect tabernacle at the right hand of the throne of God in heaven. All those details that are given about the Old Testament tabernacle are given because it was important. But it was only a shadow or a picture. It was built by human hands of the real tabernacle built by God. Very significant details in verse 12. And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. There's several very significant details there in verse 12. Notice the last one first, the end of the verse. Having obtained eternal redemption. Redemption. What the law could not do, Jesus did. The law could not give a real solution. Jesus did. Everything about the law was temporary. It had to be done over and over and over. And it was all really only external. What Jesus provides is eternal and internal. Jesus provides real forgiveness, a real relationship with God that the law cannot. Christ is not a continual reminder of our sins and our guilt as that curtain was in the tabernacle. If we are in Christ, 
He actually reminds us of our eternal redemption. So instead of holding up our sins and reminding us that you cannot come near to God because you are a sinner, Christ says, I paid for that sin. You've been cleansed for eternity. Come, draw near to God. It says also, verse 12, that he entered the holy place once for all. Jesus is not coming and going to offer more sacrifices as those Old Testament high priests had to. Because the one sacrifice that Jesus offered, that one time on the cross, was sufficient for all time to obtain eternal redemption. The blood of goats and calves could not do that. Those animals' blood was offered involuntarily on their part. There was no goat or calf that ever came and said, here, let me die for you. Someone killed it, took its blood against its will, and offered it for themselves. And it was just the blood of an animal. But Jesus voluntarily offered his own blood, the blood of the perfect Son of God, God in human flesh, fully sufficient to obtain eternal redemption. In verse 13, for the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify them for the cleansing of the flesh. How much more with the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Now the argument here in verses 13 and 14 is this. If the blood of goats and bulls, the ashes of heifers, are somewhat effective, if the blood of goats and bulls, the ashes of heifers, is enough to cleanse the flesh, so that the Jews could continue to do more of the rituals of the Mosaic law and at least get that close to God, then how much more with the blood of Christ? How much more with the blood of the perfect Son of God that was offered voluntarily, not by the hands of sinful men, but through the eternal Spirit? How much more? The sacrifices of animals could not cleanse your conscience from dead works. Christ can. Dead works, meaning your sins. Or trying to work your way to God, as so many of the Israelites did with the law, thinking that the law could bring them to God, but it was never enough. Their conscience was always troubled by their sin. Christ can. Last week we saw in Psalm 103, verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. What is that based on? Is that that David was calling on the people of Israel to rejoice in, to praise God for, it was not because of the law. The law could not accomplish that. 
that only came from that promise of the someday when there would be a day of reformation. Because of that someday, if your trust is in what God has revealed, Israelites, then as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. But that someday came. And we ought to be rejoicing, thanking God in Christ for the removal of our sin by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, in the new covenant, because our sins have been completely and finally dealt with and will never be held against us, will not ever separate us from the love of God. That is the solution to a guilty conscience. Jesus' blood has paid for your sins. Jesus' blood has removed the guilt of your sins from you completely and forever. So your conscience can be clear. Even though you know you have sinned, even though you've sinned knowing it was sin, Jesus' blood is sufficient to cleanse your conscience from those dead works. We can sleep well at night knowing that our sin will never separate us from the love of God. We can put our heads on our pillows at night with a clear conscience because of the blood of Christ. Praise the Lord. Does that mean then that we should continue in sin so that grace may increase? What's the Romans 6 answer? May it never be. This promise of a cleansed conscience through the blood of Christ is not ever meant to give us the idea that we should just go on sinning because now sin is not that big of a deal because Jesus paid for it. The Bible never hints at that. What is the result? What should be the effect of having our conscience cleansed by the new covenant in Jesus' blood? Well, look again at verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works? Here's the result. To serve the living God. The greatest thing about a clear conscience is that with a clear conscience, we are no longer hindered from serving the living God. That curtain in the tabernacle was a sign to people, you can't come in here and serve God. You're a sinner. The worst thing about a guilty conscience is that it prevents us from serving God. I can't share the gospel. I'm too much of a sinner. I can't disciple someone. I'm too much of a sinner. I can't use my spiritual gifts to serve in the church. I'm too much of a sinner. The blood of Christ has removed the curtain and freely opened access to the Father for all who come through Christ. 
And so we are welcomed to draw near with a clear conscience and given the blessing of the opportunity to serve our Creator because of the blood of Christ. There's a reason to give thanks. That veil has been removed. Through Jesus' blood, he says, come, draw near. You are welcome at the throne of God. You are welcome to serve the living God. What a reason to give thanks.